Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Russell here. Hi, everyone. It's Ben. Today on the show, we have Chris Klinke. Chris has been part or leader of countless Himalayan expeditions over the past decade. He has been averaging two expeditions per year. Chris is most recognized for the American K2 International Expedition in 2008, where tragically 11 climbers passed away during that time. Chris is also an accomplished photographer with credits in Men's Journal, Outside, GQ, Rock and Ice, Alpinist, and several newspapers around the world. So Chris, tell us a little bit more about yourself before we get started. I've been a climber slash guide from about 2005 to 2011. And during that time, I was highly focused on expeditions, uh, spending probably six to nine months of the year out of the country and either participating or working or leading expeditions to some of the tallest mountains in the world. Um, I have accomplished six out of the seven summits. The one I haven't been able to get to as of yet has been Antarctica, Mount Vincent. And hopefully that will get ticked off the list sometime here in the next five years. I slowed down my climbing in 2011 and started working for a climbing equipment company based out of Colorado called Trango. And I have uh, been the vice president there for the last three years. And I also read that you used to be a VP of a financial services company. That's quite the career transition. Yeah, it is. And uh, it's been uh, quite the different transition for me. <laughs> what, I, what I realized is I was spending a lot of time climbing up a corporate ladder that I didn't have much interest in pursuing. And I wanted to be able to take my talents of leading an organization and do it some, somewhere where I was passionate. And Trango offered me that opportunity. And so I've been here. Yeah, that's great. I like how you're now climbing mountains instead of the corporate ladder. <laughs> um, but before we really get into those expeditions, I need to ask some pretty basic questions about mountaineering just because I'm not too familiar with it. First off, the mountains are 26, 27, 28, 29,000 feet high. At what altitude do you really start to need oxygen? I've heard of some people trying to go long distances at 26,000 or 27. What does it feel like to breathe at that altitude? It's like trying to breathe through um, a plastic bag some days. <laughs> and after you get acclimatized, it becomes easier. And it's breathing through a paper bag. It's a little bit more porous. <laughs> you know, for most people, the key to acclimatization and, and climbing a big mountain, whether it's Mount Everest or just a 14er, is you got to give your body time to acclimatize so it can properly adjust to the altitude. Most people have problems when they try to ascend too quickly and that's when the shortness of breath becomes debilitating and so one of the keys in any expedition in any climbing endeavor is to really give yourself enough time to sit down and rest as you as you move up the mountain so your body can adjust the new altitude and how long does that normally take and do you ever get impatient mountaineering is a struggle between intense boredom followed by intense periods of activity <laughs> Um, so yeah, it, it, it's always a struggle to be, 
to take the time uh, on a big mountain like Mount Everest, you're going to spend five to six weeks acclimatizing before you're ready for a summit day. Wow. It's going to take you that long. It takes the average person when they track to base camp on Everest, you're moving up to 19,000 feet. And um, so as you're moving up, you know, you got to give yourself time. And normally that process takes 10 to 12 days to safely ascend to base camp. And that's before you even really get on the mountain. How does that work exactly? When you go up, do you try to go up a little bit further and then you come down? And what are you guys doing all day to entertain yourself? Podcasts. <laughs> yeah, podcasts. Lots and lots of podcasts. Uh, no. So you're typically what you're trying to do is you're trying to climb high and sleep low. So in any when, when you're climbing a big mountain, you basically ascend the mountain almost three times before you actually go for the summit. Wow. Because you're going up and down the mountain multiple times, uh, not only to carry loads if it's on a more remote peak like Makalu or K2, but also to allow your body to adjust because you have to give your body that time and you got to give it a period of stress and a period of recovery so that you can safely ascend. And the only way your body changes is under stress. To relate it to an everyday activity, first time you start running, if you haven't ran in five years, you got to start slow. You got to go, you know, you're going a mile. You're not going out and running 10 miles the first day. Um, if you do, you're going to be completely debilitated the next day. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you always want to have a plan for acclimatization. And for most people, that that is a, a maximum of a thousand feet a day. So uh, one more quick question. What role do the, the Sherpas play? I've seen a lot about the Sherpas when you're climbing the mountains, and it seems like nowadays each person has a Sherpa with them. And again, you're, you're referring to a lot of the mountains in Nepal, primarily Everest, that have the Sherpa okay. um, population. And the best analogy I heard was something from Ed Vister's, and Ed kind of described it as the guides. We work as like the general contractors, we, we, you know, we're, we're the overseers. If you're building a house, you know, think about building a house. Um, the guides act as the general contractor. We're, we're bringing all the resources together. The Sherpas are really the construction crew. They're the ones who are putting the infrastructure on the mountain. They're moving the lumber. They're mm. putting the nails in. So they're the ones who are moving tents, food, oxygen, gas, stoves, everything up the mountain to enable the clients to be able to ascend safely and achieve their goal. And they do that primarily on, you know, the 8,000 meter peaks in the Nepal region. Although they, there are some Nepalis who have climbed in Pakistan and other regions of the Himalaya, the infrastructure where Sherpas are integral to, to the success really lies in the commercial mountains. So mountains like Choyu, Everest, Shishapangma, Manaslu are where you're going to see Sherpas more prevalent. On more remote mountains like Makalu, K2, Broad Peak, Nanga Parbat, Sherpas aren't used as heavily. What would you do on a mountain like K2 if you didn't have Sherpas? How would it be different? The big difference is you're hauling all your own equipment and you're fixing your own lines. So on Everest, what is made Everest such a popular destination for and a, an achievable goal for so many has been the infrastructure is there. The Sherpas are the ones who are setting up all the tents. So when you walk into base camp, your dining tent is set up, your cook tent is set up, your sleeping tent is set up, your bathroom tent is set up, a shower tent is set up. Wow. Uh, you have generator power or solar power wow. to run electronics. 
And all that infrastructure is created by the Sherpas. The Sherpas actually arrive at Basecamp almost a month before the clients even start to show up. And then you have a group of people called the Icefall Doctors who their sole job is to fix the route through the Kungu Icefall and maintain that route throughout the season for the, sh- the other Sherpas as well as for the clients and guides to safely uh, have a route to navigate through the Icefall. On a mountain like K2, all of that is done by yourself. For a real mountaineer like you, is that more desirable than Everest or is it just different flavors? They're all enjoyable experiences, but yeah, it's kind of like, do I prefer chocolate ice cream or vanilla? They both have their benefits and they both have their drawbacks. The rewarding part for me when I guide on a mountain like Everest is to see other people achieve this goal that they spent their whole life planning for. Hmm. When I do a mountain like K2 or Makalu, it's more about my personal goals and having that satisfaction of having accomplished it or I've got as far as I could and safely. Yeah, as I mentioned in the bio, you did go to K2 in 2008, and there was a terrible thing that happened, and 11 climbers actually passed away, but no one from your group had any real issues um, with any life and death situations. Well, I guess you were probably in many life and death situations, but could you just walk us through that event and what kind of transpired on that trip that you took? When I went to K2 in 2008, there was uh, a number of different teams there. The bigger teams were, were our expedition, the American International K2 Expedition. There was a Dutch team named Norat. There was a South Korean team. There was a large Serbian team. Uh, there was a conglomeration team. And by conglomeration, I mean it was a bunch of different people who came together to share base camp services. And then a few other smaller teams that were filtering in and out of the mountain. What ended up transpiring on K2 was a unique set of circumstances in that in the month of July, we had almost 20 days where the mountain was unclimbable because of weather. And so what ended up happening from starting out is everybody was going to summit at different time points. You know, the Dutch had actually arrived at K2 Base Camp in the middle of May with a goal of summiting in the first two weeks of July. But based on the weather conditions, they couldn't do that. The South Koreans had come in at the end of May with the goal of summiting uh, in the middle of July as well. And again, they weren't able to do it. And so we ended up having a meeting and saying, let's all plan this together and try and execute our summit push on the same day and combine resources. And so we had eight different teams ascending the mountain on last part of July, July 30th getting ready to go for a summit push. And the eight different teams came up by two different routes, the Abruzzi and the Sasan, and met at Camp 4. When we started out that night, there was uh, some delays and some logistics problems. We had eight different teams speaking five different languages, I believe, and none of them speaking the same common language. (laughs) Wow. So communication was definitely a challenge. So as we were moving up the mountain, We were going much slower than anticipated for a variety of different reasons. And two of my teammates decided to turn around because of the fact that we were moving so slowly. Our team was uh, all trying to ascend without oxygen. In base camp, we had selected people who were going to be what was known as the lead team who would be fixing the route while other people were carrying rope and supplies to support them. And because we were, our team was solely without oxygen, uh, we were bringing up the rear of the uh, group. And so 
what ended up happening is I got into the bottleneck, which is a very steep area on K2 on Summit Day, uh, directly under an overhanging Serac. Um, and a Serac is a large chunk of ice hmm. on the side of a mountain. As I'm standing there, I'm seeing melting water, and I made a decision to turn around at that point and descend. So you're looking up. And you see this huge overhanging piece of ice and you see water dripping from it. And it's very common on K2 for those things sometimes to just break off and tumble down the mountain, right? Yeah, it's the most dangerous section of K2 where the most accident happens is in this section. The water dripping wasn't off the Serac. It was actually snow melting on rock. But I still had never seen that before above 8,000 meters. And at this point you said, okay, I don't feel right this isn't looking good. Yeah. So I made a decision, a personal decision to turn around. My teammate, Searing Dorje, made the decision to continue. And they continued to push to the summit. And the summits ranged in time from uh, the first person to some summit was a gentleman from Spain by the name of Alberto Salazar. And he summited around 3.30 and was able to come back down through the bottleneck and around the Serac before dark. And that was another consideration I had based on the speed we were going. We wouldn't be able to enter the area where you can get around the Serac safely Mm. after dark. And what ended up happening is they summited as late as 7.30. It gets dark on K2 about 8 o'clock. So they were descending in the dark from the summit of K2. Multiple people stopped and decided to wait out the night. Other people continued. Um, The people who continued came down and it was a Norwegian team and the Norwegian team got hit by a Serac collapse. And it was a husband and wife who were leading and the husband uh, got blown off the mountain and the wife survived. Wow. And uh, another gentleman by the name, uh, Lars um, and Cecilia then continued to descend the mountain to camp four. But when that Serac collapsed, it actually took out all the line and all the work that everybody spent all morning doing to ensure a safe descent. And so now this 60-degree slope of ice no longer had any fixed rope. And so people became stranded above the bottleneck overnight. So people were left out for exposure. People who were continuing to come down um, continued to get hit by avalanches. And the, the cause of death for many of these was either avalanche or exposure or both. What do you mean by exposure? Is that like freezing to death? Well, some of the people who are climbing with oxygen, uh, their oxygen had run out. And if you are at 8,400 meters and you've been dependent upon oxygen that simulates that you're at 6,000 meters, when that oxygen runs out, it kind of hits your body like a freight train. You talk a lot about the decision-making, and there were two instances that you said where you decided to make your way down and descend while your partner decided to keep ascending. And then another instance where some people had decided to stay at the top of the mountain when nightfall came, and then there were also people who decided to descend. So these are obviously very difficult decisions to make considering they are life and death. How do you go about making them? I think the biggest thing for everybody on that mountain is people are making decisions based on what they're comfortable with and what their personal limits are. When you're climbing in a situation like K2, the decision to continue or not continue climbing is really a personal one. When you're on a commercial mountain such as Everest or Choyu, those decisions are made by the guide. 
And so in those situations, if I'm making a decision that affects my team, if I'm a guide on like Everest or K2 or Choyu, I will make that decision that will ensure that people are going to return safely. My personal philosophy is climb, climb hard, climb high, come home. You got to be able to do all three of those. And if the last one isn't going to happen, I, I don't continue. And so the goal that I have in place is to help people make those decisions as a guide and help them come to the right decision in that process. When it's just me, it's actually a, a little bit easier decision to make. I know how my body is reacting. I know how I feel. I know much how much gas is in my tank, so to speak, so that I can make that educated decision to, to stop and turn around. As a guide, I have to evaluate where everybody's gas tank level is. It's kind of like trying to look at the cars next to you on the highway and estimate how much gas do they have left. It's a difficult thing to do, but it's the responsibility you take on as a guide. And is that what you love about the sport is that, yes, you have this goal of summiting, but you also have another really important goal, and that's to stay alive. And you take away all these distractions, and you really narrow it down, okay, we want to get from point A to point B, and then back to point A while staying alive. Is that what you love about the sport? Yeah, it is. It's a good summary. And I, the way I describe it is it's it's kind of the base level of goal achievement when you're climbing a mountain is on the way up, every step you take, you know, is taking you closer to your goal or achieving your goal. And this probably is a blend of my corporate background with mountaineering, but I'm a very goal-oriented person. And so in that process, every time I take a step upward, I know I'm getting that one more step closer to the summit. The thing that's always hard and the thing I try and impart on my clients and try to remember myself is the goal isn't always to get to the summit. The the goal is to get to the summit and return. And leaving off the and return part makes the whole getting to the summit pointless. Mm -hmm. I would say so. (laughs) So You have to have both in order to do it successfully. So did you need to have your mountaineering experiences to figure this out? Do do many inexperienced climbers reprioritize things and put the summit on top? Sometimes, yes. Some people come fully prepared to walk away if the situation is not right. Other people don't come with that same viewpoint. To do an Everest expedition, you need to have the stars aligned perfectly. You have to be in great physical health. You have to be in great physical shape. You have to be able to take two and a half months off your, your work and generating income. You have to have the support of your family. You have to have the perfect weather window. You have to have the support of your Sherpa team, your Sherpas. You need to have a good guide and you need to have cash. It's not a cheap sport. And so you have to have all these factors that line up in order to make a successful summit bid on a big mountain like Everest. And to be able to do that, a lot of people look at, if I don't reach the top, it's a failure. I look at it when I don't reach the top that I've made good decisions. But for people who have now spent 10 years of their life planning for this event, it's really hard. Is If you had just spent the last year planning to run a marathon and you have to DNF, you don't feel really confident about a decision to pull out of the race. It's not much different. It's amazing. You know, I was talking to Russell's dad, Rick Wilcox, who's a really accomplished climber. And, you know, I asked him to show me some mountains and he talks about the ones that he didn't summit 
the same ways that he talks about the ones that he summits. And it's almost like he still has that same sense of accomplishment knowing that he went as far as he could and was smart in his decision-making. And it wasn't about beating his chest, okay, I, I made it to the top. It was that, okay, I accomplished what I came to accomplish. For him, as well as for me, it's about being able to reinforce your decision-making process. You know, uh, people make fun of me because I wear flip-flops pretty much year-round. <laughs> well, part of it is I have all my toes still. <laughs> and I can't say that for a lot of my fellow climbers. <laughs> yeah. This is where it's important to be able to look at your decisions. And when you make a decision to stop climbing, not to look at it as a failure, but to look at it as a personal success. Yeah, you have a pretty impressive resume of mountains, and I couldn't put them all in the uh, bio. Obviously, it would take me too long. But what's kind of next for you in your mountaineering travels? Really, there's only two places I, I still want to desperately climb, and one of those is a return to K2. I still haven't achieved the summit there. I guess it's actually three because I do want to finish the seven summits and, and make it to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And then another mountain called Kanchenjunga, which is a remote peak in Nepal that is seldomly climbed and just presents the same type of challenges as going to a mountain like K2. When can we expect to see you there? <laughs> I don't think you'll see us there. <laughs> but... <laughs> to be determined. Well, we'll keep checking in with your blog to see when you've conquered those. So Ben and I also wanted to ask a little bit about your guiding career. One of the companies that you work with is Rowalling Excursions. Could you maybe tell us a little about them? Rowalling does all kinds of trips. What's interesting about Rowalling is it's one of the few Sherpa-led expedition companies that are out there. The gentleman who runs the company, his name is Searing Dorjay, and he was on K2 with me, and that's how we met, actually. Searing has been building his own uh, expedition company for the last 10 years, Searing personally has summited Everest, I believe, 12 times. Wow. <laughs> summited K2, summited Manaslu, I believe, six times. Summited Choyu four, Shishapangma twice. It, it, pretty impressive list of summits for Searing. Searing has become one of my best friends over the past six years, I guess now. And what's interesting about Searing's company is that it's a family-run Sherpa business in Nepal. They specialize on running small trips to a variety of different areas, including a remote valley called Rawaling that's really three valleys over from the Kumbu, where Everest is, but very untouched by the commercialism that has happened in the Rawaling Valley. I mean, it's how the true Nepalis live. So they have specialized treks to the Rawaling Valley. For the ice climbers out there, one of the unique things they've done is they've actually built an, a lodge there, for a winter lodge, because there is, I would say, probably 500 unclimbed multi-ice pitches in the Rowalling Valley. Wow. It's just an incredibly fertile place, and so there's water flow coming off the Himalaya. And in the winter, it's an amazing place for ice climbing, and there's a lodge and guide service available for, for people who have that passion. They also do treks to areas like the Langtang and Mustang region. Um, so they, they specialize in really small Sherpa-led trips. You know, 95% of the staff speaks English or another language. So communication isn't a challenge, and they're really high quality. So 
They're a group that I've worked with for a long time. The other company I work with is a company called Expedition Himalaya, which also specializes in treks to remote areas of Nepal and India. Great. Well, we'll put those resources on our website, mtmmeister.com. One last question that I wanted to ask you, and we were talking a little bit about this during the pre-interview, is the recent events that transpired on Everest in the Kumbu Icefall region, the avalanche there. Could you talk a little bit about that situation and what's going on right now? Well, as has been reported in the press, Everest is effectively shut down from the south side for the 2014 season. And that was not an easy decision for anybody to come to. With the the tragic avalanche that happened off the western Coombe into the Coombe Icefall, it had killed 16 Sherpas in an area that is known to be dangerous. And as a guide on Everest, it's one of the areas where I basically tell people, this is where we run. You don't often run on an 8,000-meter peak, but this is an area where if you can, you should. So it's been a known danger area for many, many years. Um, avalanches happen in this area quite frequently. It's a risk that the Sherpas are well aware of. Everybody tries to take preparation to help their clients and the, the Sherpas get through this area safely and quickly. One of the things that has occurred is there's been a lot of press uh, about the Sherpas and their list of demands. But one of the things that I perceive is that it's the demands are coming from a relatively small percentage of the Sherpa population at Everest Base Camp. Most of the Sherpas and most of the responsible companies I know have given their Sherpas the choice of whether or not they return to the mountain. And those Sherpas who have returned have come back and said, yes, I want to climb. They truly want to climb. And they, they, they recognize that, yes, there is a risk involved with it. The Westerners recognize the risk is involved with it. But it doesn't mean that climbing the mountain is desecrating the mountain. But there's a smaller majority who feel that there should be no reason to go up, that they want to get their full compensation. They want to also make a statement of that they have the power to shut down the mountain. I see it as a unique time for the Sherpa population and the role they play. I fully support the Sherpas in working to, to get more government support for themselves and their life insurance benefits and their health insurance benefits, their rescue benefits, and making sure that the Sherpas are paid a living wage and that they have an opportunity to grow. And for most Sherpas, that's why they are Sherpas, because it gives them an opportunity to grow and it provides a really good income for somebody in Nepal. By Western standards, it's very small. Mm-hmm. But for Nepali standards, it's a, a quite a decent living. So for many of these people, this is how they make their living and this is what their passion is. And being able to support them is what I think anybody should be able to do at this point. Yeah, it's a crazy situation kind of where it is now. And and the whole environment having such a big touristy industry there, not that it's forced them to take jobs doing these dangerous things. It seems like a lot of them are very interested in it and they really like the climbing. But do you think that's going to be an issue going forward as the demand for Everest just increases more and more? It is going to be an issue. And one of the things that they have done is they set up the Nepali Mountain Guide Association so that the Sherpas who have the passion for the mountains go through guide training, not any different than what a Western guide receives. 
And so there are many, many Sherpas who are fully accredited IFMGA guides, International Federation of Mountain Guide Association. Mm -hmm. There are many Sherpas who are going through that program now. It's about a four-year-old program in Nepal, and it's continuing to expand and grow and encompass more and more Sherpas. And so one of the big things is as they become more experienced as guides, their jobs are evolving and changing as they have for the last 30 years. When, you know, people first started going to Everest via Nepal, you know, Sherpas were used to just carry loads. Now Sherpas are used to fix lines, to establish camps, to establish safe routes through the mountains. And that's been going on for the last 20 years. And that's continuing to evolve. And so I see the Sherpas as continuing to evolve in their roles and responsibilities and their responsibilities to the mountains. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. I found what you have said to us absolutely fascinating, especially the part about your mindset when you're climbing these mountains. Before we let you go, what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you? Probably via Facebook or via my blog. Great. Yeah, we'll have the links for both of those on your Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Chris, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, that was impressive. Hope you enjoyed Chris Clinky on the show today, Meister fans. Yeah, that was really interesting learning about Chris's perspective on that tragedy. There's a ton more information on the internet. Definitely check that out if you're still interested. On a different note, we have a Meister giveaway this whole week. This is a little bit happier than the K2 tragedy. What do we have, Russell? Well, we have a ton of stuff. If anyone wants to check it out, go to our website, mtnmeister.com to look at all the different pieces of gear. We had two winners last week. They're so pumped. All you need to do is share one of our Mountain Meister episodes on your Facebook and make sure you tag Mountain Meister and you'll be entered to win. I'm really excited for tomorrow's episode. Ben, tell us a little about it. Tomorrow we have Kate Snow on the show. Wow, that rhymed. <laughs> but anyway, she does Ironmans. She's a professional triathlete. And we're going to learn what it takes to do what she does. We'll catch you then.